Good morning. <laughs> My name's Tim. I'm the senior minister here, and I'd like to the passage open uh, as we look at it together. I want you to begin by imagining that you're someone who's never heard of Christianity before, never ever been into a church before. You've got zero knowledge about Jesus or anything to do with the Christian faith. Uh, and then imagine that you walk into this church building. Now, it's possible that this could be your situation. If you're with us today and this is you, welcome. It's great to have you with us. You're very, very welcome here. Uh, for a lot of us, though, we probably have some experience of Christianity and it's a bit hard to uh, clear our minds of any knowledge, but I want us to try and do that and imagine we walk into this building and what is it that you would notice? As you looked around the building, you noticed the symbols and the different things that we have placed in this uh, church complex, what is it that you would notice and want to ask questions about? I hope that one of the things that you would notice is that the cross is obviously quite important to what goes on here. Uh, there's a big cross, for example, hanging on the wall uh, behind me there. Um, there's crosses at various places around on the top of the baptism font there. Uh, maybe as you were approaching the church through the car park, you'd look up and see... Uh, a big cross on the roof, yes, it doubles as a mobile phone tower, but it is a cross nonetheless. And there are crosses at various places throughout the church complex. Here's today's challenge for you, a prize for the person who can tell me exactly how many crosses there are through this church complex. It's not as many as you might think, actually. I've counted them. And you can come and uh, you can have a prize if you can name the right figure. In the lead-up to Easter this year, we're focusing our attention on the cross and why the cross is so important. And we've called the series Because of the Cross. There's some uh, little cards with an outline of the series that you can get a copy of on the welcome table in case you want to invite others to join us. And we're thinking about what the cross achieves. What happens as Jesus goes to the cross? What benefit does it bring for us? Now, of course, with something so core to the Christian faith as the cross, we often have quite simple and snappy summaries to describe the work of Jesus on the cross. So we'll say things like, Jesus died for our sins, which is very true. And we would use that sort of summary in the prayers that we pray, when we're explaining things to our children or our grandchildren. Uh, maybe when someone at work says, what's the Christian faith all about? You might say, Jesus died for our sins. They're simple, they're useful for explaining things in a short space of time. But if you simply reduce the cross to that sentence and uh, nothing more, then you can become simplistic and you can reduce the richness of the cross and all that it is about. The biblical picture of the cross is much more complex and nuanced than can be captured in a simple, snappy summary. I want you to imagine a diamond which has uh, many different faces. And depending on which angle you look at that diamond, uh, you see it in a very different light. It's still one diamond, but looking at it in different angles, you can see the complexity and the beauty of it in different ways. And the cross is like that, like that beautiful, rich, glorious diamond. The Bible uses a variety of images, metaphors, words and concepts for understanding the cross and all that it achieves. A few years ago I read uh, this book by John Piper as a devotional book. It was called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I thought perhaps a 50-week series on the cross might be a bit long. Uh, so we're just doing four weeks 
looking at four different angles on the cross. But even a book with 50 reasons doesn't plumb the depths and the beauty of the cross. We're looking over these next four weeks at four things that because of the cross, people who trust in Jesus receive. And we start today with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is there just a few hours before his arrest. He's had the Last Supper with his disciples. And as he goes into the garden, he tells most of his disciples to stay and to pray. And he moves further into the garden with his intimate circle with Peter, James and John. And he asks them to pray too as he goes and prays himself. And as you look at this passage, I want you to focus on the emotions of Jesus. In verse 37, he's described as sorrowful and troubled. Sorrowful speaks about sadness, but more than sadness, uh, distress as well. Uh, To be troubled is to be in anxiety, to be in distress, and even to be uh, at the point of agitation, he's so troubled. Then in verse 38, Jesus describes his own emotions in even stronger terms. He says there, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. His sadness and his anguish are so great at this moment that it's almost killing him. These are strong and engulfing emotions. And it's a striking contrast to the usually calm and composed Jesus. If you've read through Matthew's Gospel and you've seen Jesus interacting in a variety of different circumstances, this is unusual for him to be in this state of agitation. He's almost swept away by a torrent of grief as he faces the near future. What is going on here? I mean, Jesus has known for a long time that he's going to die. He's predicted three times in Matthew's Gospel that he is going to die, that this is going to happen, and he's been able to speak quite calmly with his disciples about it. So what is happening here is Jesus balking at the final hurdle. People have often contrasted Jesus' reaction here in the Garden of Gethsemane with how other people throughout history have faced death. Uh, So the famous contrast is often drawn with Socrates, who in his prison cell in Athens, according to Plato, uh, took his cup of hemlock, uh, the deadly poison, and without trembling or changing colour or expression, raised the cup to his lips and very cheerfully and quietly drained it. Death didn't seem to faze him in that moment. What about Jesus' own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount when he says to his followers, rejoice in the midst of suffering? That's a command that is repeated throughout the New Testament. What about many people who have been martyred for Christian faith throughout their history who have died in a very composed and assured way. Uh, Just last year, uh, 20 Egyptian Christians were kidnapped in Libya and then were beheaded by ISIS. Uh, The event was videotaped. These images are probably familiar to you. And the striking thing about these men is how strong their faith was in the moment of their death. Each one of them was praying Lord Jesus Christ in the moment before their death. Indeed, there was a 21st captive, uh, Matthew Ayaga, who was not an Egyptian but was from Chad, and he was not a Christian at the time of his capture. And yet, 
He was so struck by the faith of the others that when on camera the militants ask him, do you reject Christ? He responds boldly, their God is my God. And so turned to Christ in his final moments and was killed because of it. Now this is just a recent example of what has been happening for centuries as people have been killed for their faith in Jesus. And yet... Jesus himself, if he faces death, doesn't face it with the same sort of confidence and hope, it seems, as these people do. Instead of rejoicing, he's grief-stricken. Instead of composure in the face of death, he's almost overwhelmed. What is going on here? Why is his suffering and death, which he himself has predicted, so confronting for him here, now, in this garden? What is happening? Well, the key, I think is in verse 39 of our passage. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And again in verse 42, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. If we're to understand something of Jesus' agony and grief, then we need to understand what is this cup that he prays about three times in the garden? What is it? Is it a reference to Jesus' suffering? He's about to face an excruciating, torturous death on a cross. Is that what this speaks about, a cup of suffering? Is it a reference to separation and isolation? His dear friends are about to betray him, abandon him, and even deny that they know who he is. Well, they're bad enough, those two things, but as we've seen already, others have faced things like that without nearly the same level of overwhelming dread that is expressed here. And in fact, the reality of what Jesus is about to face is far worse and has not been faced by anyone else in all of human history. The metaphor of the cup is used throughout the Old Testament to uh, speak, in the vast majority of instances, of God's wrath, God's anger against and punishment of sin. Here's a few examples. Psalm 75 verse 8. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Even more strikingly, Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Jeremiah 25.15 is similar. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And then a few verses later in verse 28, and if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. There are many other references I could keep going, but I think these make clear the image. This cup is not merely a cup of suffering. It's not merely speaking about being abandoned or even of death. The cup is a reference to God's wrath, God's settled anger against sin. God's response to violence, injustice, corruption, selfishness, rebellion, 
and the rejection of him as the rightful Lord and ruler of all things. And it's a reference to that anger being poured out in the just and right punishment of sin. So in those verses, it's the cup that Israel, in its rebellion, has been told to drink, despite God's patience for hundreds of years. Eventually they do suffer punishment for what they have done. It's the cup that the nations, all the wickeds of the earth, are told, you must drink. And as Jesus goes to the cross, it is the cup that he will drink as he stands in the place of sinful humanity. He will drain that cup to the dregs as he faces the wrath of God against sin and takes the full force of it upon himself. It's no wonder, is it, that Jesus is grieved and agitated, deeply grieved to the point of death. This is not a cup of hemlock like Socrates had to drink. This is a far more potent and terrifying poison. And this moment in the garden anticipates Jesus' cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me as the sinless Son of God is separated from the Father because he bears our sin and receives the rightful punishment for that sin. Because of the cross, Jesus takes our judgment. Now there's something of a parallel to this event in recent popular culture. I don't know how many of you have read the Harry Potter books. Uh, but the key, one of the key characters in the Harry Potter books are, is this man, Professor Albus Dumbledore, the headmaster of Hogwarts. Um, and in one of the books, he's travelling with Harry and they're trying to locate these horcruxes, which are things that they need to destroy in order to defeat the evil Lord Voldemort. Now, I've probably just used a number of words in one sentence that some of you have never heard before. That's okay. But they discover one of these located in a stone basin and covered in an emerald potion. And according to Dumbledore, the potion cannot be penetrated by hand, it cannot be vanished, parted, scooped up, siphoned away. No magic will work on it. It can only be drained by drinking. And that's what he decides to do. Here's a little clip of that. to be drunk. All of it has to be drunk. You remember the conditions on which I brought you with me? This potion might paralyze me. Might make me forget why I'm here. Might cause me so much pain that I beg for relief. You are not to indulge these requests. It's your job, Harry, to make sure I keep drinking this potion, even if you have to force it down my throat. Understood? Why can't I drink it, sir? Because I'm much older much cleverer and much less valuable. Your good health, Harry. As the scene continues, Dumbledore rises in agony. Uh, memories of terrible things from the past run through him. Uh, and Harry, who's been instructed to do so, actually has to help him drink to get it to the bottom. It's not a perfect parallel, but it's an interesting reflection on what we read about Jesus drinking the cup. In both cases, there is a willingness to go through great anguish, despair and judgement for the sake of others and to deal with the consequences of evil and sin. Because of the cross, 
Jesus takes our judgment. Now, I don't know how you react to all of this talk about God's anger against and punishment of sin. Uh, some years ago, I was at uh, the Melbourne Diocesan Synod, which is sort of the, uh, the, the government, governing body for uh, the Anglican churches in Melbourne, and we were singing the song In Christ Alone as part of the opening worship, and uh, I sang these words with great gusto, uh, and on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And I realised as I was singing that the entire row in front of me had stopped singing. (laughs) They'd been singing loudly up to that point, but they didn't sing that line. We can't sing those words. God is a God of love. And the cross demonstrates God's love and mercy and forgiveness. What place has wrath, anger and judgment got in that? Perhaps you feel the same. Much of our objection, I think, to speaking about the wrath of God or the anger of God is that our models and examples of anger are so flawed and self-serving. So we only ever see anger in people who are flawed and sinful people. And it's the sort of passion which is quite selfish and can flare up suddenly when our pride is wounded or when our interests are undermined. It's often linked with a lack of self-control and it's often arbitrary. Surely God is not like that. Surely God's not like that. No, God isn't like that. Let's be quite clear about that. But occasionally in other people and in ourselves, we do see what we might call righteous anger or something getting close to it. When we're zealous for what is right and when we react against injustice and abuse that we see. I can remember getting angry recently at at one of my children um, when he or she, I won't say who it was, uh, grabbed one of my other children's artwork and in an act of spite, crumpled it and ripped it and threw it away. I really, I really got mad in that moment because I knew how much care had gone into creating that piece of art, how many hours had been spent doing it and it was such a stupid and destructive response to that beautiful and carefully done work. Did the fact that I got angry mean that I stopped loving my child in that moment? Not for a moment, no, not at all. It was precisely because I love my kids, the one who did wrong and the one who had been wronged, that I was angry. Because I love them, I didn't want them doing things like that or suffering things like that. Now, please be clear, I'm not pretending that my anger was perfectly righteous anger. I'm as flawed, as sinful as the next person and one of the interesting things reflecting on this is how often when I am mad with my kids that it's more about my frustrations, my plans being wrecked, my selfishness as much as it is about their good and correction. But I hope you can sort of see that that there is something there purified of the selfish components that is right, that is righteous anger against something that is genuinely wrong. Perhaps this week you've been observing the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child abuse, which have been highlighted by the testimony of Cardinal Pell. How has that made you feel? Has it made you feel angry? And if you felt angry as you've watched that, is that right or is that wrong? When someone abuses a child to satisfy their own lusts and 
It's being done using a position of authority and trust obtained because of their position in the church. And then it's ignored, it's covered up, it's not considered important enough to deal with by the powers who are appointed to care for and protect those very children who have been abused. Shouldn't we be angry that that's allowed to happen? I'm angry. This is more than damage done to an artwork. This is damage done to one of God's works of art, a child made in his own image. It should make us angry, and I'm sure it makes God angry. In moments like this, I think, we see something of a glimpse of what the righteous anger of God looks like. His settled and consistent opposition to evil. His refusal to tolerate it. A holy anger purified of those elements which make human anger sinful. And understood in this way, there's no tension, is there, between the love of God and the wrath of God. It's because God loves the world that he's made, the people that he has made. It's because he created us for relationship with himself and has ordered the world and human relationships that we might flourish, that a rejection of his loving rule, violations of other human beings, the destruction of the planet that he made for us, angers God and requires that he deal with it. Otherwise, all we've got is a sentimental God rather than a truly loving God. But returning again to the Garden of Gethsemane, standing again at the foot of the cross, we see so clearly that God is indeed loving and that his anger against sin in no way undermines his love. Because on the cross, God pours out his righteous anger on himself. God the Son, Jesus Christ, takes the cup of God's wrath, the cup that is rightfully ours, and he drains it, taking upon himself the consequences so that we don't have to. As we read in the Old Testament, the just punishment for sin is you must drink it. You must drink, you and I. But Jesus takes the cup out of our hands, drains it to its dregs, so that we don't have to drink it. That is love indeed. There's a price for sin. It does provoke the righteous anger of God, but the price is paid by another because of the cross. Jesus takes our judgment. Two implications, I think, flow very naturally out of this particular aspect of the cross. Firstly, it shows us in no uncertain terms the seriousness of sin. When you see the agony of Jesus in the garden, when you know his grief at having to drink this cup, the cup of God's wrath, a cup that is not rightfully his, but rightfully ours, it shows us that we cannot take sin lightly. It's a very serious matter and it is not easily dealt with. Indeed, Jesus prays, doesn't he, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. If there's some other way we can do this, if it can be dealt with another way, let's do it that way. But there is no other way. And Jesus is willing to be obedient to his Father's will and drink it. If we're ever tempted to think that sin is not that serious, that our lies are justified, that everyone else does it anyway, that I deserve a few indulgences in my life, thank you very much, or whatever the justification we give ourselves, turn your eyes again to the garden and see the true perspective on the matter. See there that the consequences of sin are devastatingly real. 
The cross of Jesus actually shines a spotlight on the ugliness and the seriousness of sin. We need to take it more seriously, not less seriously, in our own lives and in our church, knowing that God hates sin and his anger burns against it. But the more you see the ugliness and the seriousness of sin, the more the second implication flows from that. Knowing how serious the problem is and God's anger against it, we're also reminded of how great his mercy and forgiveness and love is as he pours out that anger upon himself. Left to our own devices and paying our own consequences, we'd have no hope with God and no future. But God is gracious, he's merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So in love, he sends his son into the world to stand in our place. In love and obedience, Jesus drinks the cup that we should drink. If we trust in Jesus, there's no cup to drink. There's nothing left. It's been drained to the bottom by Jesus himself. He's done it so that we don't have to. God's wrath was poured out on him and turned away from us. And as, as he died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Because of the cross, Jesus takes our judgment. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that these are serious and sombre matters. Help us to see the seriousness of a rebellion against you, the serious impact of evil and injustice and sin in the world and in our own lives as well. But seeing it's serious, Lord, help us today to rejoice in what you have done about it. Help us to have a deeper sense of gratitude and appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ who took the cup from us, drained it to the bottom so that we don't have to, and dealt entirely with the judgment that you have against our sin. We thank you for Jesus. We rejoice and praise his name. Amen.